0: I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dive into our time of teaching. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the revelation of Jesus that he teaches us and instructs us and comes alongside us and shows us how to live in the world he created, teaches us to flourish in a world that we have broken. And Lord, I pray that you you would give us, I pray you'd bring freedom this morning So look at a topic that is so key to our lives, to our relationships, to our flourishing, and God, I just pray for a real sense of freedom in the areas that we're going to talk about today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, have, uh, so we're in a series called About That Life, and it's a series where we're going to look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've been doing that for a while now, and it's really answering the question is, what does it mean to live a life of actually following Jesus? And uh, we've looked at quite a few topics the last few weeks uh, I know last week uh, Maria crushed singleness I heard uh, and uh, the topic of singleness uh, the sermon on singleness she is crushing singleness yeah yeah she's do- she 's doing it well uh, and then uh, before that uh yeah uh, grant dominated marriage. <laughs> And uh, I won't get into what he did with sex, but, but here's what I'm gonna say, is we've been talking about core uh, uh, ideas and core topics, and today we're gonna talk about one that might be surprising. And to, to, to dive into that, I just wanna start with a story from my life. Have you ever had a moment where you were really stressed out because you realized something? You're like, wait a minute dang. Um, and I I had a time like that where I was really stressed out and it's kind of a weird time as I think through all of life and how stressful life can be. I'm thinking of a moment in fourth grade and it's fourth grade, and, and I'm playing Little League Baseball. Oh, little League Baseball. Now, I got, you, guys, you guys, we've been through this. You know I'm an athlete. You look at me. You see it. You know it. You know it. I know it. Uh, it's true to everyone here. But that being said, a very bad baseball player, and I was playing for the uh, Imperial Beach Little League, and, um, and it was stressful, not because the game was on the line. It was like fourth inning. Uh, it, it was stressful because my dad showed up to the game. Now, you might be like, dad, isn't that kind of normal? Dad's good at games. Uh, it wasn't normal for my dad. Uh, and, and again, I wasn't stressed because he was a baseball dad or he was obsessed over my performance. or like, man, if I don't get, you know, I don't hit a double today. He's not going to love me anymore or something like that. It was more like, why is he here? Uh, my parents divorced when I was in second grade. And prior to that, my dad had been in the Navy and been gone a lot. And after the divorce, one of my parents um, wrestled with substance abuse. And one of my parents had big mental health challenges, And uh, that led to them not being super present in my life. One was more physically present, one was less, uh, but they both were not emotionally present and struggled with a ton of stuff. And so they couldn't meet me emotionally, they couldn't provide much comfort, uh, they couldn't bestow a sense of identity on me, that's for sure. In addition to that, uh, in terms of family, my entire extended family, which included 11 aunts and uncles, dozens of cousins, um, dozens of uh, great aunts and uncles were on the East Coast, Uh, My dad's from from Boston, my mom's from Boston, with the exception of one set of cousins who also moved out for the Navy, like my dad did. Um, But they had a lot going on, and my my dad was like, hey, we're not really going to kick it with them much. And so, um, in a lot of ways, I was looking for a place to belong. You guys know this part of my story. I grew up five minutes from the San Ysidro-Tijuana border. Uh, My kindergarten class was about 29 kids. Uh, Two were white. There was me and a kid named Weston from Utah, very white name. Uh, there was one Filipino kid, one black kid named Quentin, And, uh, and again, um, everyone else was Mexican or Latino. And I've mentioned uh, this before. I learned the days of the week in Spanish before I learned them in English. Now, um, and so I grew up in this overwhelmingly Mexican space, which in hindsight, I am totally fine with. But when I was little, I felt out of place. And in the context of that space, I met a girl in third grade. And she had blonde hair and blue eyes. And her name was Jessica Ceritza. She's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Mexican. And I was like, wait a minute. And, she's, and she said, hey, my family's from Guadalajara. I don't even know if this is true. She's like, uh, Guadalajara, they're all blonde-haired. Bl- or no, if, if you see a Mexican with blonde hair and blue eyes, they're from Guadalajara. That's what Jessica told me about her family, her story. And so what I started doing was, I was like, my dad's never around. All I want to do is be accepted by Mexicans. And I was like, my dad's from Guadalajara. <laughs> Now, you look at me, I'm, I'm very white. I mean, I'm, trans, it's, it's, I'm see-through at times. I'm not even really white. I'm like, a, I'm, a, I'm like an aged pink wine, you know? Like, you look at my skin, you're like, man, that guy's pink. And so I started telling people I was half Mexican. <laughs> and again, my dad was around a lot. He was never at school stuff. It wasn't a big problem. And then he's at this lily game. A grip of my friends are there. They're all Mexican. I've told them this story. Uh, by the way, none of, the, none of them were like, hey, we'd accept you if you were Mexican. It was just like I felt out on the outs and stuff, wanted to feel more in. And um, and so the problem is my dad, uh, when he gets emotional or when he visits Boston, he tends to say certain words with a Boston flair. This is 25 years ago. He's, like, fresh from Boston, whatever. Uh, his accent's pretty thick, and a Guadalajara variation of a Mexican accent speaking English, quite different to a Boston accent, all right? And I remember just being like, dude, there's going to be, like, a little time where some parents are going to be like, hey, your dad, we'd love to meet your dad. You know, parents would be like, hey, Andy, we'd love to meet your dad. And uh, I just went to the bathroom for like 30 minutes. <laughs> I just kicked it in the bathroom, hoping my families are going to dip out, uh, my friends are going to dip out, people are going to lose track of me. And they did. No one found out. I would uh, tell people later, I'm not half Mexican. Everyone's like, dude, we knew. We knew you were half Mexican. <laughs> but we loved you, man. Like, you are our, you are our burrito. So... Um, So uh, now here's the thing. I couldn't bear the shame of being found out. And one of the things I learned that day as a kid is there's almost no stress like the stress of keeping a lie going. There's almost no pain like the pain of being betrayed or lied to. But man, the stress involved with lying, the lack of integrity we feel, the lack of connection we feel, and intimacy we feel, the loneliness we feel with lies can be paralyzing. Now before you judge me as a child pathological liar, you need to know I'm not alone in this. James Bryan Smith in his amazing book, The Good and Beautiful Life, we quote often in this series. He says, to tell the truth, I lie a fair amount, and so do you, I suspect. We all lie a lot more than we realize because we have a strong and intricate system of rationalization that justifies our deceptions. Um, According to a study conducted by uh, Robert Feldman, in a 10-minute conversation, we tell an average of 3.3 lies average American lies every three to five minutes. Author and researcher Ralph Keyes found that some form of deception occurs in nearly two-thirds of all conversations. If research on the subject is credible, nearly all of us tell lies far more often than we realize, is what he came to the conclusion of. Now, it might not be an out-and-out lie. It might be something less obvious, but it's just not true. It might be BS, okay? And if you don't know what that stands for, it means basically suspicious, okay? Um... Uh, now, on a serious note, I'm not going to get too into it, but, but a University of Washington professor named Carl Bergstrom started a three-unit course, and it was, this is what it was called, calling the real term, calling BS data reasoning in a digital world a logic course, philosophy course, Uh, and he essentially claims in the class, I've watched a few lectures uh, actually, uh, they claim that social media is so full of lies and misinformation and news sources are so slanted in today's day and age that we need to learn how to discern and distinguish between basically suspicious material. The syllabus gives a few course objectives. Some, some of my favorite things. Uh, to one, uh, here's a couple, four things to teach people. One is to remain, villi- village, uh, to remain vigilant for BS contaminating your information diet. Recognize that BS whenever and whenever you encounter it. Uh, figure, out your, figure out for yourself precisely why a particular bit of BS is BS and provide a statistician or fellow scientist with a technical explanation of why a claim is basically suspicious. Uh, the course's required textbook is called On Basically Suspicious by Princeton logic professor Henry Frankfurt. And Frankfurt actually gives a helpful distinction between lying and basically suspicious material. He says one of the most salient features of our cultures is that there is so much BS. Those of us with relatively educated and well-ordered minds know the pain we experience. This is the most elitist quote of all time. Uh, the pain we experience when forced to listen to the nonsense spewed by so many. And he breaks down the difference between lying and this stuff. And basically the idea with BS is is you're not intentionally trying to deceive. Where lies are, I'm, I'm trying to keep you from the truth. BS is, BS is, I don't even know what the truth is right? So an example would be Donald Trump. Uh, it also, um, it's pretty much something that's unverifiable and impossible to disprove. That would be BS. So when Donald Trump says, nobody loves science more than me, is it a lie? I don't know. Like, how do you <laughs> refute that, right? Um, by the way, I'm not picking on Donald Trump. J- Joe Biden does it all the time. Um, uh, or, or when isolated incidents are rolled into one narrative or cons- conspiracy that is unverifiable, like when a couple events happen, and then the media claims there's a wave of something that's happened two, maybe three times. It's everywhere. It's like, I, don't, I think it happened two or three times. And we keep talking about it. We've given it a name, and, and it's a whole thing now. And so is something happening three times an epidemic or a wave? Or is it just three moments? And so Frankfurt observes that the majority of Americans, regardless of political affiliation, race, or religion, traffic in basically suspicious material And he believes that it's more dangerous than out-and-out lies because it erodes the very concept of truth. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because as fallen humans, we all have massive problems with truth. Um, Maybe for you, it's white lies, right? I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where someone's like, hey, have you seen this movie? You're at like a dinner party and you're like, yeah. Five seconds in, you're like, I don't even mean to lie. I have not seen that movie. I was just trying to keep this thing moving. Uh, and they start getting more and more specific about scenes they like and your thoughts on them. You're like, I got to go to the bathroom. That's kind of what I do, I guess, when I lie. <laughs> if I ever run to the bathroom a lot in a meeting, like, be suspicious of me. Um, another another kind of white lie, uh, um, a mentor of mine, Chris Venon, he says when he moved from South Africa to America, I don't think this has been true for Grant, uh, but when he moved to America 30 years ago, he said, Americans are such liars. So what do you mean? He's like, they all say let's get lunch. Nobody means it nobody's like in Africa it's like come over for dinner you're coming over for dinner it's like t- in the next day or three days um, a, a white lie like oh they're not home right the lie that dress looks beautiful on you or the white lie of maybe you're sharing a streaming account that's only meant for a certain amount of households and you're really stretching what a household is like in the Bible it's an oikos it could be 45 people it doesn't matter where they live I'm going with the Greek term Netflix is into Greek. they get it Or maybe it's not a white lie. Maybe you know the weight of a heavy deception. You've experienced the soul-crushing reality of deceiving your spouse or significant other while cheating on them. Or you have a life-defining lie, like the man I met who confessed to me as a pastor that he had forged his grad school transcripts to get a job at a prestigious company in his fields. Or that your dad's from Guadalajara. (laughs) But whatever it is, uh, we, I think we need to ask, like, why do we do this, right? Like, what is the matter with us? Like, why can't we just walk in the truth, live in the truth? Why is this so hard? And to unpack this, we're going to look at this morning's teaching text, uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 33, where Jesus starts to dive into this idea of lying. It says, verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. So he's like, you've heard it said, and so uh, an Old Testament teaching, i going to do a second, but it was very common to make an oath to the Lord, and if you do, they're like, you need to keep that. That's consistent throughout the Old Testament. 34, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by the earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair, white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Now, you might be feeling pretty good about yourself right now, right? How many you guys took an oath this week? Crushing it, right? We're obeying Jesus. After hearing about the challenges of singleness and marriage and divorce and lust and sexual wholeness and managing our anger in a healthy way these past few weeks, we could come across this text and go, whew, finally something I'm good at. <laughs> I'm a millennial. I don't commit to a thing. <laughs> Never mind, take an oath. <laughs> Andy, this week, right? I never struggle with swearing oaths. Andy, this week I can honestly say I'm applying the teaching of Jesus. I've never had to confess oathing to my accountability partners. Finally, a teaching of Jesus I am crushing. But there's more here than meets the eye. Let's work our way through this text verse by verse. Uh, 533 says, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. And all the commentaries say, Leviticus 19.12 is one of the texts he's referring to. In Leviticus 19, Yahweh says to his people, do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God, I am the Lord. And again, everyone in Jesus' original audience would have been very aware of what Leviticus teaches. Uh, They would have been aware of this idea. And similar to what Grant got into when we were talking through divorce and remarriage, there was like schools of thought on oaths, but but it was actually way less of a controversy. It was like 80% of the people viewed it one way. And so the teachers of the law in Jesus' day created a couple of loopholes that distinguished between speech not under oath and oaths not made to the Lord. They taught that you must be honest and keep your word to the Lord, but that the same commitment doesn't necessarily apply to human relationships, which is pretty (laughs) dumb, (laughs) right? Like it's like, man, it's just, it's moral chaos, Uh, New Testament scholar Charles Quarles points out that some first century rabbis emphasized only the importance of speaking truth to God and downplayed the importance of absolute honesty in all communication. They thought that they had a special obligation to keep promises made to God specifically, but could break promises made to others when it was convenient. So Jesus isn't down with this logic, as we'll see. Verse 34, But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. Another thing you need to know is that in this oral culture, like your word really had to be your bond. Most people are illiterate. You don't have accounting software. You don't have uh, lawyers with contracts. You have lawyers who mostly talk through. There's very little that's been, it's gotta be handwritten and it's expensive to handwrite. You gotta find someone who's literate. You gotta find someone who um, has scrolls. Uh, You gotta find someone who is educated in the thing that you're talking about. And so um, it's a oral culture. Again, the majority of um, male Jews in Jesus' day would have memorized the Torah word for word. So it's an oral, verbal culture. And so the ways that you would get people to kind of go, okay, you're going to do it, would be vows. And so people used to make vows um, to God, but then, you know, rabbis are like, hey, if you make a vow to God, you're kind of locked in, okay? Um, th- a vow, kind of a vow a vow prenup, not, not marriage, but just in anything you're agreeing to do is like, if you just make it to them, or to something else random, like your body or the city you're from. Like, put it on your city. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, or put it on your your head. Like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'll, I'm praying a curse. It's kind of like when kids on the are like, I put it on my mom, man. This is true. I'll bring you the money. I put it on my mom. It's like, dude, you're in eighth grade. You can't even make that call. Um, Jesus is saying, uh, <laughs> uh, don't do that. And uh, in his helpful commentary, Daniel Aiken writes this. He says, disciples of Jesus are to be characterized by such honesty and integrity that an oath of any sort is completely unnecessary to add credibility to their words by the way this is important uh you i don't think it's a sin and most teaching throughout church history doesn't think it's a sin to like take an oath with the government when it's they're asking you to do it just and they ask everyone to do whatever it's when you're initiating an oath to get something done which we'll get into in a second Either you, you lack the integrity for them to believe you in the first place, or you're trying to get them to do what you want, which is a different thing. Jesus says, don't swear by heaven as if it counts less since God is there on his throne. Don't swear by the earth as if that gives you an out since it's, uh, it is his creation where his, he rests his feet. Don't swear by Jerusalem either, since it is the city of the great king, God himself. And don't say, may my head be cut off if I lie, the probable meaning of the phrase by your head, since you have no authority over your life. Only God does. In fact, even your hair color is the sovereign prerogative. He's saying, under oath or not, those who live in my kingdom can and should tell the truth. Does that make sense? So there may be an oath that you take because you're going to be a witness or whatever. Um, and it's one that they give to everyone. Um, they shouldn't need a special oath for you. Like, oh, dude, Scrant, get the Bible out, man. He's, we got to get the truth out, right? We got to get the uh, lie detector test in here. It's Paul. Uh, we got to, uh, you know, w- whatever it is, it's, it's um, we can count on them. Does that make sense? Um, there's another angle on this, though. A key idea is that you're not bringing the vow up yourself, to manipulate or control a situation. Which leads to our last verse, verse 37. It says, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Now, again, that sounds kind of like taking an oath, like going to court, taking an oath is from the evil one. Like, that's pretty intense, right? Um, Of all the sins, like, why is this one from the devil, right? Like, why not, you know, murder or whatever? We talked about this earlier. Like, why this? And, uh, and again, uh, Dallas Lord adds something here that I think is really, really helpful. He says, the essence of swearing or making oaths is to try to use something that, though impressive, is irrelevant to the issues at hand to get others to believe you and let you have your way. Right? So when you go, I swear by Jerusalem, I'll pay you this. It's like, there's it nothing to do with what's happening here. It's making you get the, the loan you want or whatever. Uh, He continues, he didn't want us to manipulate or coerce or bully or trick people into something. He saw this as inconsistent with loving people. And so the reason Jesus is so intense is because he's describing something that is destructive to our lives and the lives of those we love. He's dealing with deception and manipulation. So many of us aren't experiencing the relationships we should be because we're afraid to be honest. We deceive people. We manipulate people. And you're like, I don't manipulate people. That's crazy, dude. 90% of social media is manipulating people to think your life's a certain way. Whether you're consistent when you're not as consistent. Maybe you're not that kind of person. Um, Dating apps. Uh, They've found that um, (laughs) about one-third had done research, uh, hundreds of thousands of resumes, about one-third of resumes have stuff that's not true in them. Uh, Again, it's this idea of manipulating, uh, wanting people to to view us a certain way to get a certain thing. And so we want to get people to assume things about us that often aren't true, which leads to today's outline. Guys, that was my intro. Uh, We got today's outline. Two of the points are very fast. Take it easy, all right? Um, I have three points. Number one, why is integrity hard? Why is integrity hard? Two big ideas. We're idolatrous and we're afraid. We're idolatrous and we're afraid. Um, We're idolatrous. We want something so bad that we'll lie to get it. We want something more than we want Jesus. We want something more than we want to honor Jesus, and we'll do whatever it takes to get it. So it could be respect, right? Pretend to be smarter than you are. Doctor your transcripts. Uh, it could be money, right? Um, it could be, um, yeah. again, you want money really, really bad, you'll, you'll cheat on your taxes. You'll lie to try to save money. Um, the guy I mentioned earlier, yeah, you know, forged transcripts to get a better job to make more money. It could be attention. You tell stories you know aren't true. They make you look like a hero. It could be acceptance, right? That's why I lied to my Mexican friends about being half Mexican. It could be power. We lie to tear someone down so that we can move up in a system. Politicians do this all the time. So we're idolatrous, but we're also afraid. And I think we're afraid because we're ashamed. You're like, if you knew the real me, you would reject me. There's that that fundamental lie that every human believes ever since the garden and the fig leaves and all that, which is if you knew the real me, you wouldn't love me. And if you do love me, it's because you don't know the real me. But to know the weird, jealous, lustful, proud, angry, afraid, anxious person that many of us are, we all have different pieces of that stuff in our hearts, to lay that bare before another, we go, you're kicking me out. You're not going to want to be in relationship with me. If I confess my sin, I'll be rejected. I'll experience a ton of pain. and I want to avoid that. And so we're afraid and we're idolatrous. Number two, um, what does integrity look like? What does integrity look like? And I have three ideas for this. Um, honesty, follow through, and vulnerability. Honesty, follow through, and vulnerability. Um, we want to strive to be honest when we realize we haven't been honest. So might seem really basic. There are times, again, I do think we lie way more than we realize. And when we realize it, to actually circle back, uh, I think a lot of lies happen almost like, um, I talked about how there's reactive anger and then there's ruminating anger. Do you guys remember that? I think there's reactive lies where you, you literally, it's not conscious. You just like do it. And then you're like, why did I say, it? right? That whole thing. Like, why did I nod my head that I saw that movie? I never seen that movie. Right. And you just, you can just come back and go, ha, I never seen that movie. Sorry um and then you know what's crazy is when you if you're like at a party and someone asks you if you've read a book or you've seen a movie or something and you say you don't know you know what that people love to do tell you about it you have made them interesting they're psyched but we're afraid to admit you know hey I don't really know what this is I remember one time I've shared this before uh, a time where uh, my wife and I were making a big decision and I called Royce to help me with the decision and I couldn't get a hold of him for advice and by the way it was like it wasn't like he owed me to be available or whatever. And uh, it was a Saturday and I got really impatient. It was like five hours. And I just decided, all right, we're just going to go for it and do this thing. And I didn't get his counsel on it. And by the way, he didn't say, you have to get permission to do this. And I didn't say, this is our, you know, so it was just like, I, I would have loved his perspective. I started feeling impatient. We went with it. Um, and then uh, he calls back. And what I did was, is I, I acted like I hadn't made the decision. So I didn't fully lie. I didn't say, I haven't done this yet. I didn't say those words. I said, so what would you do if you were me? And he talked for, on a three to five minutes, and it was a quick thing. I said, okay, that's really good to know. That's really good to know. And then I got off the phone. But I, I think I definitely implied I hadn't made a decision. I didn't say I hadn't made a decision. And I, I called him back, I don't know, like 10, 20 minutes later. I was like, hey, man, I, I feel like I, like I just, I wanted your approval, and um, you ended up saying something that I hadn't done. And I don't want to look stupid. And so I just was like, oh, OK, that's good to know, man. Uh, and I want you to know. Um, does that make sense? So, so it's small, but it's big. Right. Um, and I think that led to more intimacy. I don't think. He, yeah, I think it was good. Um, <laughs> it's a couple years ago now. But that's an example where, where that can happen. Um, I've seen it so many times in our church. It's been beautiful where someone's gossiped about someone and then they've been talked to, or they, you know, realize, and, and, and then they actually go back to the person they gossiped to and apologize, and then they go to the people they gossiped about them with or whatever and went and apologized and owned their part. Like, I shouldn't have done this. Like, I represented them in a way I wouldn't have represented them if they were here. And I was trying to manipulate a situation and get you guys to agree with me or whatever it is. On um, The second one, this is the biggest one I want to hit, is follow through. Follow through. Again, I've commented on this before, but it's so huge. Many of us are living through a cultural moment that is plagued, with a lack of follow through, before I've called it commitment phobia, right? And um, we see this play out every day in Southern California, millennials with cell phones, right? Um, You text someone, you text someone to remind them about an event they've already committed to be at weeks ago. Hey guys, just a reminder, uh, my daughter's birthday is today. And then they're like, oh, I, I think I'll be there. Oh, yeah, that that sounds like something I might be able to go to. You're like, what? And and often what they mean is, like, I could be tired. (laughs) I might have had a long day. Uh, Comedian Aziz Ansari once joked that before texting existed, if you made plans with your buddy Phil to grab a beer at 8, and Phil wasn't there by 8.15, Phil was dead, right? We are generation, we should be generation F, not generation Z, generation flaky. Okay? Generation, we don't, you know, we're not committed It it plays out often. Anytime people don't want to put a label on stuff, so often, the deeper you get into it, it's like, I don't want to commit to this thing. Something better could come along. But then it means we're not people of integrity. Our yes isn't a yes and our no isn't a no. Our spiritual, uh, my spiritual director introduced me to something uh, called the idea of an integrity gap. And, And the idea is that integrity often, it's not just being honest, it's being consistent, and she destroyed me over this. Um, she she told me, you guys might have experienced this. I've apologized to some of you about this. She said, um, we're trying to get my calendar in order and like trying to have a more sustainable, healthy pace as a pastor. She said, do you agree to meetings after you preach on Sunday? Like, do you agree to the meeting at the gathering space for later that week? I said, yeah. She said, how often do they happen? It's like, like a quarter of the time. And she's like, why do you do that? I was like, I don't know. I feel like I love this person. I, and, and again, um, she goes, again, you, you weren't trying to deceive them or whatever. Uh, but when you put out, hey, I'd love to spend time with you, and it doesn't happen, how does that impact the other person? And I was like, oh, it's not a scheduling thing. It's like a love thing. And, and, and a couple people recently have talked to me and said, hey, just so you know, man, like you, you said, hey, I'd love to connect. And then we didn't connect. And uh, it made me feel really unloved and unvalued. And they weren't crazy to feel that way. Does that make sense? Uh, And again, I do, I'm going to forget at times. And there's times where I generally mean to, and I'm going to forget it on accident. And uh, it'd be great to have a reminder if like, you know, but by and large, the the, the day in and day out should be if I commit to something or I say, let's do this, that it happens. Does that make sense? And with the integrity gap, um, uh, she gave me this tool and it was called honoring your word honoring your word. And it's really simple. Cause again, th- this isn't just here. This is like in my marriage. I have another thing I do with an integrity gap thing. Um, whenever my a- my wife asks me what time you're going to be home tonight or whatever, it doesn't have to be nighttime. Like wh- when are you going to be back? Um, what I do is I say like around 1220. Now it could take anywhere between 1210 to 1240. Okay. My wife's a very gracious understanding person. She's married to me. She's very gracious and understanding. (laughs) And instead of giving her a range, hey, honestly, babe, I don't know about traffic stuff, 1210 to 1240, I split the difference. Half the time, she's like, wow, you're early. Half the time, she's like, I I can't count on you. Does that make sense? I don't know where this came from in me, but I think it's some part of it's shame. But, like, I don't want her to be upset, so I, like, try to split the difference. Um, I would do it when I uh, want to buy something that's like a special purchase and I'll go um she's like how much does it cost and I'll say uh it'll be like $83 I'll go around $80 right it is around $80 truth be told um but why not just say 83 right does that make sense like like I have this fear with her and and and, um Dan's just like hey that's that's an integrity gap like you're nervous and you don't just give the full story like you're not lying you're not saying like it's five dollars, whatever. Um, and it is around. But what is around me? Right. Like it's kind of a BS. Like that's what the, the Princeton guy would say. Um, does that make sense? Uh, and again, I think we can do this in our lives all the time where we commit to be at something. and We just don't show. It's kind of the millennial. I don't know. It's not the Irish goodbye. It's like the millennial. I'm not there, you know, kind of thing. Um, it happens with get gatherings, guys. A lot of you guys, you're mem- you've committed to be a member of a church, and you guys, are, you guys can be pretty inconsistent, right? Like, that can happen. That happens to me, too. Um, I'm not calling anyone out in particular, but we go, hey, we agreed to be here um, every week unless we're sick or something outside of our control happens, we're out of town. Um, and you go, man, I'm there once every six weeks, right? That, again, I don't think, I want to be really clear, that's not rebellion, right? That's not deception. Um, but what it can be is not prioritizing what you said you'd prioritize when you became a member, so it becomes an, an, uh, an, uh, an integrity gap. Does that make sense? It's not like, uh, vive la resistance. Like, we're fighting. We're rebellious. Like, long live brunch. Fight for brunch. Down with sermons. Up with Benedicts. Like, that's not what it is. But it is something where you're not falling through on what you committed to to do. Does, does that make sense? I mean, you do this in a ton of our relationships. And so Jesus wants to get at that stuff. And so um, this is my longest point. I'm almost done. Um, it's, uh, this tool is called Honoring Your Word. I thought this was really helpful. And Honoring Word has four components to it. Number one is acknowledge to someone that you didn't keep your word. And so I've grown. I'm not perfect at it. Like, I'm not perfect at it. I'm growing in it. But I'm aware I need to grow in it, and I keep pressing into it. Um, but like with Jack, I saw someone here today. I was like, oh, I need to follow up with them about a text from a long time ago, and I'm really bummed about it. Um, it but actually acknowledging, going, hey, I'm sorry I didn't do that thing, like I said. Does that make sense? Like, hey, I said 1220. I got here at 1225. The second thing is, so there's acknowledge, then there's get present. Get present to the impact by asking those who are affected to tell you about their experience. This will likely sting. Again, maturing is hard. And you'll have to work at not being defensive. In humility, let the feedback in. Hey, when I showed up five minutes late, how did it make you feel? Does that make sense? When I said, let's hang, and then we didn't, how did that make you feel? Number three, make a heartfelt apology. This is an unqualified apology, by the way. There's no if ands, or buts. It's just, I'm sorry that I did that and that you felt that way. This isn't a, sorry, you f-, like, sorry you feel that way. What I did was fine. This is a, I'm sorry I did that. And I'm so bummed at the impact it had on you. Um, I don't want you to feel that way. And then number four, is just re-promise. You give your word again and begin to work on keeping your word. Sometimes you have to re-promise multiple times before you can learn to faithfully keep your word in an area it's helpful to see this as a learning process that's uh, taken on over time. Does that make sense? But guys, this is what Jesus is talking about, that we be people who, um, when we say it, it's going to happen. And then last is vulnerability. What does integrity look like? It looks like vulnerability. And I, and I would say vulnerability is confession of sin. Uh, it's, 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 it's being honest about what you're facing. And not just sin, I would say even bringing people in on your suffering. It doesn't need to be everybody. But like somebody, you know, Chris, you start always say, someone should know what's knowable about you. That there's a couple places where you don't have secrets. It doesn't need to be everybody, right? No one wants the friend, like, you know, all, everyone knows all their secrets all the time. You're like, this is a lot. But there should be a couple of people that you can say, hey, this is where I'm at. It's not pretty right now. This just happens. Da, da, da. And then last but not least, how can we be freed up towards integrity? How can we be freed up towards integrity? And the answer is by living in gospel truth. Like living in the truth. When we live in truth instead of lies, we don't need to speak lies. When we remember the gospel and what it means for us, we're increasingly freed to walk in freedom. This is a process, but it's real. Again, I can admit, I can hear the painful feedback about how I made someone feel by my integrity gap. If I go, my identity, my, my integrity gap isn't the truest thing about me. Jesus is. It's safe to learn because I am justified. It's safe to learn to be sanctified. When I remember my adoption, because Jesus died for me, I have a father who adores me, which means I, when, it means I don't need the adoration of others. So I don't need to pretend to be someone I'm not to get them to like me. It also means I have a father who's going to take care of me, this all-powerful sovereign father, who's going to take care of me, which means I don't have to lie to get ahead to take care of myself. I don't have to live with a scarcity mindset because I have a generous father who owns all things, and I live in his world. Last time I'll quote James Bryan Smith today, I thought this was helpful. He says, telling the truth may cause discomfort or embarrassment, but we live with a God who protects us and provides for us. If we choose to lie, we are not in harmony with the kingdom, and losing that is much worse than the consequences of telling the truth. He says, the kingdom is not in trouble, and we who stand in it are never in trouble, Therefore, we can risk telling the truth. We can handle the consequences of the truth. In the kingdom, we strive for more than merely not lying. We want our speech to be acceptable, not only to the people we address, but also to God. The bar is set high. Our words need to be honest and true, but they flow from the heart. So our heart has to be honest and true. At present, it may not be, but as long as we keep growing as disciples of Jesus, our words will be genuine, flowing from a genuine heart with nothing to hide. I I actually, the more I thought about this and prayed about this and read about this, I think that maybe the reasons we lie and we all lie might be some of the richest material for spiritual growth. Like, if you want to know what you really trust in, what do you lie about? If you want to know what you really worship what do you lie about? What are you hoping for? What are you looking for? And I want us to reflect on where am I covering up? Where am I lying? Ever since the garden, man, ever since the fall, ever since the fig leaves were out, we've been a people who lie. This rhymes, and I, we lie to get by. We, we think we have to take matters in our own hands. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it with Abraham he lies over and over and over. Jacob's name means deceiver. He lies over and over. And every time it was them trying to take care of themselves. And it was them fearing man or people. And then we see it um, all throughout the Torah when Israel, people like steal stuff and hide stuff. And then you go on and on and on. But there's all these accounts. And, and, and guys, when Jesus came, he came to remove our shame. And he came to reconcile us to a father who will provide for us. Some of you guys, you really are ashamed of who you are, which is why you lie. It's why you use the filters. It's why you embellish stuff. It's why you pretend to be better than you really are. You need it. because You're not comfortable in your own skin because there's shame there. You need to know that on the cross, Jesus didn't just die to take away our sin. He died to take away the effects of sin. He died to take away our shame, scripture says. You need not be ashamed if you're in Jesus. That fourth grade kid who lied about being half Mexican needed to know that Jesus took away his shame and Jesus had a place for him at his table. He didn't have to pretend to be someone to get in in the first place. He loved not the pretend Andy, he loved the real Andy. Right? He didn't love Andres, <laughs> he loved Andy. The real Andy. The real Andy who had, who had at that point already sinned a lot and who had already suffered a lot who had already, even in fourth grade, had a lot of stuff to be ashamed about early, Jesus loved that kid. And he wanted to take away the shame of that kid. And I want to say to you today, if you're here, he would love to take away your shame. And so when we take communion, it's a, it, part of what it is is it's a reminder and it's remembering that our shame's been taken away. It's remembering that we have nothing to hide. It's remembering that we don't need to impress anyone. It's remembering that because our shame's taken away, we can admit, uh, we can ask for help where we need help because we don't need to impress anyone. We can get the care and help and attention we need. Because if we don't, it'll kill us. And so the cross says it's safe again to come out of hiding, it's safe to be you. And so I'm going to pray. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I would love to encourage you to take communion. But before you do, I want you just to consider for just a second what am I ashamed of? What am I not trusting God with? And then both of those two little circles are in the big circle of what do I lie about? And with the gospel, reminds you, you don't have to. Would it pop your shame bubble? I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm always going to take care of you. I love you just as you are, not as you should be. Jesus, thank you for dying, for living, for dying, for rising. Thank you that you traded places with us. You took our shame upon yourself, and you gave us dignity and honor and approval that can never be taken away. It's an exchange. Our shame, your honor. Our our deserve-to-be-pushed-outness, you bringing us in. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, would we be so grateful? And would we even um, feel free today? to confess stuff, to talk to people, to have conversations about where we haven't been fully honest or we've been afraid to be honest. Would people maybe share sin they've never shared before to get the help they need? Would people maybe bring people in on the the suffering or the the anxiety they have right now that they're afraid to bring people in on? And so would you just have your way in our community. We take communion, and from communion, your spirit would do what you want to do in the lives of the men and women in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.